0: You will remember that James was the brother of Jesus. And I can only imagine that James would have heard Jesus talking about rich people. He would have heard it maybe himself and certainly would not have forgotten it. Words like no servant can serve two masters for either he will love the one And well, either he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or in another place, when Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then you remember, of course, the parable that Jesus told about the rich man who had produced plenty. And he thought to himself, the only thing I can do with my wealth is to build bigger barns. I'll store my grain, store all my goods, and I will say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry because you have everything that you want. And of course, God comes to him that night and calls him a fool. Certainly, James knew these words. Almost certainly, he had heard them. And with those words and with Jesus in his mind, I'm sure, he wrote these, these uh, this passage that we're going to read this morning from chapter 5 of James, the verses 1 to 6, if you have a Bible feel free to turn to it, or else it will show up on your screen, which it already has. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages. Hear that maybe echoes of that of that parable of the rich man. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And as I was thinking about this passage, and of course what I'm always trying to do with more or less success, I'll leave that up to you, is to understand what James was saying in his time and then try to apply it in our time, because our times are quite different. And as I was researching and thinking about uh, this idea of rich people in James' time, I came across a couple of resources that I'd like to share with you just to help you understand better what what James is talking about, and I think Jesus, when he talks about the rich people that they saw around them. One of the uh, quotes I'm going to put up in just a minute is from Obery M. Hendricks, Jr., who is uh, an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church teaches religion and African-American studies at Columbia University, and is a visiting professor of Bible and ethics at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And he talks about, in one of the articles I read, this concept that's called limited good. I had never heard of it before. You may not have either. It's called limited good. And this is an idea that you find certainly back in the time of Jesus, but also in many cultures that we today might call developing cultures. And it's the idea that as people live together in rather um, undeveloped circumstances in terms of technology, material goods are in finite supply. There's only so much of everything. You only have so many resources. There's only so much you can plant with your hands and with your hand tools. Upward social mobility, moving up, getting richer, is simply not an issue. And in general, those who are are at the bottom find it impossible to move up. Hendricks says this, and now we'll put the quote up on on the screen for you. There will be three of them. Given their belief in a limited amount of available goods and resources in the world, coupled with the cultural belief that, Because everyone was created in the image of God, everyone was entitled to their own fair share of these goods, it was a small step to the conclusion, and here it comes, that anyone who accumulated more wealth than others did so by unjustly depriving their neighbors of their own rightful portion. Anyone who was rich was rich because he had cheated or oppressed someone else. Hendricks goes on, thus all accumulations of wealth beyond that of others in their communities were considered unjustly gained by greed, deceit, exploitation, or theft. As cultural anthropologist Bruce J. Molina explains, that every rich person is a thief or the heir of a thief was a truism based on the perception of limited good. If all goods are limited, and people were created more or less on equal footing, then those who have more must have taken it from those who now have less. So in the world of James and the world of Jesus, if you saw a rich person, you almost always knew, and it may not have been true in 100% of the cases, But it was most likely true that that person was rich because he had oppressed someone else or his father, grandfather, his family had oppressed. So that dividing line was, was really, was, there was, there was either the rich or there was the poor. And if you were rich, you were a thief. And then in addition to that, there is the, um, the the whole system of the Roman Empire. What's now uh, one of the words used to describe it is this word patronage. The way the Roman Empire was was set up uh, to to um, the economics, particularly the economics and the politics of it. And a good friend of mine, uh, John Elwood, um, with whom I speak a lot about these things. Uh, I had a discussion with him about this week. He knows a lot about this stuff, and he sent me a. Uh, a part of a paper that he had written on the Roman economic system. And I want to quote you from it. It's, it's easier to quote than to explain it myself. So here it comes, these quotes again. There are, there are three of these. There were only two of the others. The elites, the Caesar, the senators, the equestrians, the, consul- the, the counselors, comprise some 10% of the population The remaining 90% were peasants, laborers, and artisans, often working seven days a week from dawn to dusk, with no representation in the halls of power. Roughly 20% were slaves, and 90% were non-citizens. Wealth flowed from the bottom of this hierarchy to the top by virtue of tribute, taxes, and the related concentration of land ownership. Tribute was paid by conquered peoples. Taxes were generally tied to use of public roads, mines, baths, and gymnasia. Conquered land was allocated to elites, and their people were forced to work as sharecroppers or slaves. Land-owning peasants were often unable to fund their taxes, forfeiting title to the acquisitive elites and migrating to cities where they replenished the ranks of laborers who succumbed to the effects of urban squalor, Pliny the Elder wrote that by the late first century, half of the land in Roman Africa was in the hands of only six persons. This system produced a social order primed to deliver luxuries to the elites, but leaving widespread hunger and misery in the provinces and amongst the poor. So whether you're looking from this perspective of limited good or from the perspective of how the Roman system was set up, everybody walking around in their villages or towns or cities knew that if you were rich, that wealth was built solidly on injustice and oppression. That dividing line was sharp, and it cut through 90% on this side, and 10% on this side. Everyone knew. So when Jesus and James hollered at the rich, everyone knew exactly who they were hollering at. It was obvious. That's not our situation today. We here in the West in 2020, we live in an age that's been driven for centuries by individual freedom, by capitalism, by the ability of each of us to study and to produce wealth, to make our own way, to decide what we want to do, to decide to make more money if we want, to decide to invest it, to gain as much wealth as we can, to become literally the richest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth in the whole history of the world. And we do so in the illusion that we are not accumulating our riches on the backs of oppressed peoples or the cost of the destruction of environment. And that makes it all of that together makes it really hard for us to 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 get to the words of James. We we can't so easily say when James is talking about the rich he's talking about that person. No, that's us, but but how how is that all working together and and how do we understand these hard words of James and these hard words of Jesus i was always taught that it wasn't about how much money you have it's about your attitude right I can have a bazillion dollars in the bank. I can have the best car, the best house, all that stuff. I can work hard and do all. Doesn't matter as long as the attitude of my heart. It's not exactly sure what that is. That's a hard thing to determine. But as long as my attitude is good, I'm okay. Even though the Bible and Jesus are pretty black and white, and pretty hard on rich people. We got around that by saying it's a matter of the heart and that the number of dollars in your bank account doesn't really matter, which ends up to be, number one, very individualistic and self-centered. A pretty clever way to blunt the sharpness of these words and to avoid them, because who can see my heart? And I can always say my attitude's fine. And this, I think, is the killer. It doesn't lead us into action to alleviate the suffering of the poor or care for the environment. It doesn't matter how much I have. doesn't much matter how I got it. As long as my heart attitude is good, why in the world would I do anything to alleviate the suffering of anyone else? And James just, I think, if we're going to to accept these words, he, he just bashes us. I don't think we can get around them. We have to to open ourselves up to hearing them and to letting them impact us. He's explicit in telling us his truth about rich people. Weep and howl, he says, for the miseries that are coming upon you, even though you're pretty comfortable now, Weep and howl. No one ever told me to weep and howl. It was always check your attitude. Your riches, he says, have rotted. I don't know if any of you can smell it now, but there apparently was some food left in the building for a couple of days. when we some of us came in this morning, it was kind of a rotten smell wasn't wasn't there, Rick Rick noticed it. I noticed it too, okay? It's not nice. you notice it when you came in? I don't know. It's not, it's, this, this is not a good picture. Garments are moth-eaten. Moth Gold and silver have corrupted. Your flesh will be eaten like fire. There's no way you, you can be serious about the Bible and get away from these images. You just can't. Don't tell me you believe the Bible or you're a literalist about the Bible or you believe in the authority. Inerrancy of Scripture, and swerve around this. It's not the only message in the Bible, but it's there. And why is James? What's what's the problem that James names? as he talks about the rich. If you look at the passage, if you have a Bible, you can look at it again. I'm not going to project it again, but I'm going to I'm going to tell you because he says, and this is really interesting, the wages of the laborers in the field which you kept back by fraud are crying against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So James says, Your riches are built on the backs of laborers and harvesters who are being uh, defrauded and oppressed. And that's why they rot. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and I'm understanding that to be, I'm not sure James would say this in the same way, but talking about the creation, the environment. You've lived on earth, exploitationally, if that's a word, in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The cows are being slaughtered by the millions and millions and millions and millions and millions. And, millions. and we're getting fat on that. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. So there's this, this slavery this oppression of people which all of us know is prevalent in our world today. All of us are intelligent enough, we've read enough, we watch the news enough, we know that most of our products are made and sold at cheap prices on the backs of labor that's either cheated out of good wages or even slave weather. Slave labor not to mention the environmental issues which we all know about. This is not about an attitude of the heart. James doesn't soften his message. It's about actual impact on real people and on the creation around us. And it has to do partly in our time with what we consider to be our priorities. This week, uh, one of the most watched opinion makers who has a show in the evening, and I won't mention his name, if you want to know who he is, I'll ask you later, you can ask me afterwards, gave a speech. I don't remember what meeting it was, but he gave a speech. And he said this, what Putin does in Ukraine, not, not this yet, Christopher, thanks, wait a second. What Putin does in Ukraine is not more significant to me than what gas costs. In fact, it's not even in the same universe. I care way more about the price of gas And I care about the destruction that Vladimir Putin is bringing down upon Ukraine and the rest of the world. And you all know the polls. You've seen them. Now you can put it up, Christopher. Thank you. What do Americans care most about? Inflation, gas prices, economy, everyday bills, and groceries. And issues of abortion, issues of health care, issues that deal with the well-being and flourishing of people on on the level in which they live, are way, way down. That's the way our society is. That's the way most of us are living. And we've been sucked into it. We've been born in it. We've been raised in it. sometimes we don't even know it and james wants to wants to take us by the collar and shake us and so he talks about this weeping and howling and what does he mean by that and i'd like to suggest to you two things or maybe two applications one is that every single one of us and i think that we as a community as a culture will all one day be weeping and howling when the light of God the Bible tends to and the theology talks about the final judgment when the light of God shines down upon this earth and shines down upon my heart and our hearts together, when that light of God reveals the sin that's in my own heart that no one else sees, that I don't even see it because it's so deep. And when the light of God shines upon the sins in which we participate and contribute to, that is going to be so terrible to see that we are going to weep and howl. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of being exposed. Caught in something. Caught in something that you're deeply embarrassed about. Caught in something that you know you shouldn't have done. Maybe the last time you remember that happening is when you were a kid. You were doing something and Ma walked in. That's going to be the feeling on this judgment day when God's light exposes everything. And I believe all of us will literally be weeping and howling on that day. We will see things that we have never seen before. And we will see them in all of our horror. But that weeping and howling is redemptive. That light that exposes drives the darkness away. The fire of judgment day is a purifying fire. And it will burn away all that's evil and all that's unjust and all that's, all that's not right. And it will, it will purify and make pure and make valuable again. So we will weep and howl, but it will be a purifying weeping and howling. And the second comment I'd like to make on this weeping and howling is this. I think that there should be in our lives now, and I'm using the word should, take that for what you will. There should be an element of lament, of sadness, perhaps even despair in our lives. If we are indifferent to the suffering of the world, if we never let ourselves be confronted by it, if it never makes us sad, if it never makes us weep, if it never breaks our hearts, then we don't have the heart of Jesus, who before the tomb of Lazarus wept. And as he rode into Jerusalem, he wept. So my, my, my practical uh, suggestion is to ask yourself, am I just going along without thinking? Or is my heart somewhere, somehow, sometimes, even in little ways, actually broken, weeping and howling maybe, at the truth that my wealth is built on the back's Of slaves and of people who have been oppressed. So, where does our hope lie? It's pretty subtle in this little passage of James, but it's there. In James uh, 5, let me look for it again, Uh, verse 4, yes. James says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters, and here it comes, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That phrase, Lord of hosts, is a little bit weird one in the New Testament. You don't come across it very much. And I think James uses it deliberately here because a, a good literal translation of it is Lord of armies. It's a phrase that you often come across in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts, and it, often, it almost always refers to this God, this King of the armies. So James introduces into this picture of these rich people who should be weeping and howling for the destruction that they have caused to mankind and creation. And hope for the oppressed, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies has heard. And he's going to do something. Then I thought back on Isaiah chapter nine, that very famous Christmas passage, where Isaiah in the middle of prophesying in the in the wreck of Jerusalem, or the wreck that was coming, exactly for these same reasons, Isaiah looks ahead and says, You know this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And now here it comes, and you can project the verse. Thank you. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the what Lord of hosts will do this. This child that's coming, this son that will be born, this brother of James, is the one who is king. He's king above Caesar, he's king above our president, he's king above the head of the European Union, he's above, is it the Prime Minister, not the Prime Minister of China, whoever he is of China, I forget. And he's certainly above Vladimir Putin. Putin. And of the increase of that government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. I listened to a podcast called The Holy Post Podcast. They it's a weekly podcast to talk about uh, different uh, relevant topics. And this one, particularly of this week, was about um, these issues of social justice, and it was quite complex. I'm not going to play the whole thing. But they were, they were trying to answer this question. Hasn't capitalism, which I think all of us believe in, in one form or another, actually raised the standard of living around the world, and reduce poverty. Isn't it really true, and I think you could make this case very legitimately, that the rising tide is starting to float or is actually floating more and more boats? That's a legitimate case to make. Here is uh, the response of Caitlin Scheiss to that question. First and foremost, she says, we ask... What does it mean to be a flourishing human, and what does it mean to live a flourishing life in community? We accept, that, that we accept the standard for what a human life is based on some numbers and how much money they're bringing in, not based on are they living a flourishing life where they can take care of their children well, where they are in good relationship with the earth and with their broader community encompassing the whole world. Do we have good relationships across nations and across communities? The fundamental question of our society, and what should be reflected in the polls, is not how much money are we making, what's our gross domestic product? What's the price of gas? What's the inflation rate? What's my stock doing? What's my 401k doing? It's not the first question. The first question is, are our communities flourishing? Can people take care of their children? Are we in good relationship with the earth? Are we serving our community and using our wealth in ways that foster community? She says, be suspicious of solutions that don't cost us anything and be very critical of the logic that it tries to teach us. And the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, comes and says to the rich and the poor, the rich you're going to weep and howl. Your riches are 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 not worth anything when it comes to this whole picture of the flourishing of the community if they are not contributing to that flourishing. And the King Jesus gives hope to the one who's oppressed. He's here. He's with us. And His Spirit is working. And He challenges us, each and every one, To let our hearts break with the things that break the heart of God. And among those things is the way we rich people treat the poor.